Uh, Penelope, or Owen, can you throw up the second verse of um, His Love Can Never Fail for me, just for a second? Notice it says, Though, though I may not see His face, my faith is strong and clear that in each hour of sore distress, my Savior will be near. And we have this idea that if my faith is really strong and clear, I'll never have an hour of sore distress. No, my faith is clear that he will be near in those hours of sore distress because we live in the veil of tears. We live in the now, in between the already and the not yet. And sometimes the now is not so pleasant. Thank you. Last week we were in Revelation chapter, we began Revelation chapter 21, and, and we were looking at the new heavens and the new earth, the consummation of God's gracious work of redemption in us. And we read of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven, and John says, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now, I believe that is an extremely important interpretive statement, that the new Jerusalem is prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I told you last week that I believe that means that the holy city refers not to a city per se, but rather to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, that it refers to the glorified church. And there are some who believe that it refers to the inhabitant, in, in, in hab, the habitation of the church, the place we will live. I think that uh, I, I, will, I will argue in this message that it's actually the church itself. It's us who dwell in heaven. We are the bride of Christ. We will be the new Jerusalem. Now, the vision goes further. The angels, angel declares loudly that the dwelling place of God is with men. And with this precious prophecy, this precious declaration, he will be with them. They will be his people. He'll wipe every tear from our eyes. And there'll be no more death, nor mourning, nor sorrow, nor crying, nor pain, because the old order of things has passed away. And remember, I pointed out last week that in that day, the old order that's passed away is the present order in our day, and we still have death and mourning and crying and pain. But that's the point at which God speaks and says, I make all things new. And he swears by his own name, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, saying, this is going to happen. I swear by my own character. Well, this evening we want to pick up where we left off last week and look at the remainder of Revelation 21. As the angel takes John to a new vision, still of the, the heavenly city, the new Jerusalem, and describes something of the glory of the eschatological church, as it were. So please follow. I'm going to begin in verse 21 and read the entire chapter, but our focus will be on verses 9 to the end. Revelation 21, verse 1, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, 
Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end to the thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be with the the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and the gates, uh, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophase, or chrysoprase, the 11th jacinth, and the 12th amethyst. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of the Lord gives it light, and its light is the Lamb. By its light, all will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the, the word of the Lord. So, here in... in these verses, the angel is, is taking John and calling him to a new vision. He announces this vision, uh, uh, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, there's an amazing parallel in this passage here, these verses, and in Revelation chapter 17. The bride, the wife of the Lamb, is contrasted with Babylon, the harlot, the prostitute of the beast. If you look at Revelation verse 17 and verse 1, then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came to me. It's probably the same angel with seven bowls. Come, and I will show you, instead of the bride, the wife of the lamb, the judgment 
of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. Probably the, one of the same angels, or, the, or the, one of the seven angels with the seven bulls. Probably the same one, but it doesn't matter. But the angel's description is the same. The invitation's the same. But then the, 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 the details become vastly different. He says, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He says, he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness in 17, but in chapter 21, he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain. Verse 17, he says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. In chapter 21, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. Tells us the woman was full of blasphemous names, whereas the bride came down out of heaven from God. In chapter 17, it describes the prostitute's gaudy adornments, and it says that she's holding a golden cup full of the abominations and purities of her sexual immorality. But chapter 21 describes the bride adorned, ready for her husband, and she has the glory of God, and her radiance is like a most rare jewel. This is intentional. There's a vast difference between the spirit of this world that is seducing and inviting and calling and the spirit of Christ who calls us to be his bride. And if we miss this, dear friends, if you miss that invitation to Christ and you're seduced into the lies and deceit of Babylon, you'll pay dearly. So we have this invitation Come and I will show you. And he shows John the holy city, which is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And that can only be the church, the bride of Christ, the Lamb. In the book of uh, uh, the in the book of Revelation, is always speaking of the church. I'm going to show you the bride. I'm going to show you the church. And he shows me the New Jerusalem, the holy city, Jerusalem coming out of heaven. From God. Now, there, there are different writers who, who would reach a different conclusion. Some say this is the city where the church dwells. It's the dwelling place of the bride, and it's an actual city with these absolutely immense dimensions. It's the city with foundations that Abraham was looking for, whose builder and maker is God. Well, again, I think that, that verse in Hebrews 11 certainly applies here. It is the city with foundations whose builder and maker is God. But let's not get caught up in all of the literal details and miss the glory of what John is writing here. He tells us New Jerusalem is the bride. He says in verse 9, I will show you the bride. Verse 10, the angel showed me the holy city. It doesn't say here, this is where the bride lives. The holy city is the bride. She is the radiant, redeemed church. One writer said the bride city symbolizes the saints, the church in its eschatological beauty. I wish I had thought of that. The church in her eschatological beauty. Right now, we are in the, between the already and the not yet. The already is redemption Jesus has accomplished for us in the cross. And the church is a glorious mixture of grace and struggle, of, of obedience and holiness and godliness and sometimes sin and failure. And we must continually take the Lord's table to remind us of God's grace to us because we are so prone to forget. 
We must continually, daily, as Pastor Mark talked about in the sermon this morning, uh, in the very first of the 95 theses, the, the, the Christian life is daily repentance. The church is in need of daily repentance now because what has already uh, been accomplished is being applied is not yet complete. On that day, it will be complete. And it will be glorious, the church in its eschatological beauty. Now, some say it's one, same, it's the other. Uh, in the words uh, of Forrest Gump, I don't know, maybe it's both, if you remember his saying that. But there's an important principle in the book of Revelation, and it's this. If you get some of the symbols wrong in your interpretation, it won't change the fact that it's still going to happen exactly as God said and as exactly as God intended. So if we get to heaven or the new Jerusalem, if we get to the new heaven and the new earth and we find that we misunderstood some of the symbolism in the book of Revelation, it's not going to in any way diminish the glory of heaven or our enjoyment of it. And the whole point of studying Revelation is not to make sure we get all the details right. It's not to fill our minds with inspiration. It's to, or excuse me, with information, it's to fill our hearts with inspiration. And if we're inspired by what we read here, we're responding correctly. So the purpose of this vision is to fill us with, with anticipation, with the wonder of God's glory and the glory that he reveals to his bride, the church. So if John is describing an actual city in which we will dwell, how amazing, how glorious. I want to go there. If he's describing the church that we will be a part of, that's amazing and that's glorious and I want to be there. Either way, as I've said before, it's going to be better than we can possibly imagine. There's, there's no human language that can possibly do justice to the glory that will be heaven the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. So we see here this, this description of the breathtaking glory of the bride, the new Jerusalem. Verse 11 tells us that she radiates with the glory of God. She has the glory of God. It's radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Now, let's not pass over the glory of God part and go to the jasper part yet. Let's take some time and camp out, about, camp out on the statement, she has the glory of God. The church will fully reflect the glory of our God. And that's one of the reasons I believe this is speaking of the church and not a literal city, because it's the city that has the glory of God. In 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, our light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. We are going to be in glory. In 1 Peter 5, 4, it says, we will receive an unfading crown of glory. And in 1 Peter 5, 10, the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus. So the glory is not simply the dwelling place where we'll be. It is us, the church, glorious the New Jerusalem is described as a, a radiant and glorious city, and the radiance is like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. Now, I don't know how many of you are rock specialists, but jasper is a, uh, is a type of quartz. 
And generally, it's not clear. It's either red or green or, or, or blue, maybe brown. Uh, so to have jasper that's truly clear as crystal, it would be very rare. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, it tells us that God is seated on his throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of, appearance of jasper and carnelian. And it sounds, as we look at this, this, this statement here, jasper, clear as crystal, most rare. It sounds very much like a diamond. Now, the word diamond doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. It does appear in the Old Testament several times. Certainly, they knew of diamonds in the time of the New Testament, so maybe what John's talking about is a diamond. Uh, again, if I get to heaven and find out I'm wrong, that's okay. It doesn't matter. It's like a diamond, one way or the other. And that's what one of the commentators said. Uh, it may be compared to the radiance of a diamond. That's a safe interpretation. But that's the, the radiance points to the glory that will be ours in heaven. Now, when we speak of the glory of God, some theologians have called the, God's glory the sum of all his attributes. Now, we want to be careful. It's not like you add up all the attributes of God and you get his glory. But, but as we consider God in all of the dimensions of his attributes, he is infinite in his glory. When Moses is saying to God in, in Exodus chapter 3, God appears to Moses. Uh, excuse me, later on, uh, after, the giving, uh, after the giving of the Ten Commandments, God is speaking with Moses, and Moses says, Lord, show me your glory. And God said, I can't show it to you because you, you can't see me and live, but I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll pass by. And as God passes by, he declares his attributes. He declares his holy character. And so I think we're on safe ground when we say, the sum of his attributes is his glory. In our confession of faith, it says that God is infinite both in his being and in his perfections. And it goes on to tell us he's infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable, he's incomprehensible, he's omniscient, he's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's absolute, so, absolutely sovereign over all things. We call these his incommunicable attributes. You know what a communicable disease is, Right? Communicable disease is something you can catch from somebody else. Incommunicable means you can't catch it. Well, these are incommunicable attributes. Man, we cannot share those attributes. We can't ever be sovereign. We can't ever be infinite or unchangeable or incomprehensible. But God also has communicable attributes, attributes that we were created to reflect. Things like he is most holy most wise, most free, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving. He's perfectly righteous. He's perfectly just. These are communicable attributes, and we can reflect those. We should be growing in these communicable attributes. And in fact, reflecting these attributes is, I think, a big part of what it means to be in the image of God. And as we're conformed to the image of Christ, Romans 8 says, that means these attributes are becoming more and more characteristic of our lives. That's part of what it means now to bear his image. But on that day, the radiance of his glory will be ours because all the attributes, the communicable attributes, will be ours in perfection. So you and I can be gracious, but not perfectly gracious. We can be loving, but, but we're never perfectly loving. We can be kind, but never perfectly kind. On that day, we will be perfectly righteous. And where the Scripture says, be holy as I am holy, we can't be holy as he is holy now, but then we will be. 
We will be wise. We'll be loving. We'll be faithful. We won't need to be long-suffering. We won't need to be persevering or forgiving because there will be no hardship or difficulty to persevere through and no offenses to forgive or to endure. But we would be if we needed to be because we'll be perfect in those communicable attributes. Jesus has begun a good work in us, and he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. The glory, the radiance of the glory that will be ours as the people of God will be the completion of that work of Jesus Christ in us. And here's what's amazing. As you think about this radiant glory of the church, not only will it be beautiful in our eyes, it will be beautiful in the eyes of our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus. Let me say this reverently. Gentlemen, if you're married, do you remember that moment? The very beginning of your wedding ceremony, the doors opened and your bride steps out and you get that first glimpse of her and it just about took your breath away. That's true for me. I I hope it was for you. And there's something about seeing your bride and knowing she is coming to you that is absolutely overwhelming with joy. Well, in that moment... That day, that time, the Lord Jesus, if we could say this reverently, his heart would skip a beat maybe. In Ephesians 5, it says that he will present the church to himself as a, in in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing but holy and blameless. And even as a groom in our day is overjoyed when he sees his bride, the Lord Jesus will have joy unspeakable and full of glory when he gazes upon his radiant bride, that's us. I I have a hard time wrapping my hands around Zephaniah 3.17 that says God rejoices over us with loud singing. But that's exactly what is going on now, but infinitely more so then on that day as Jesus gazes upon his radiant bride. Moving forward, John describes the vast dimensions of this new Jerusalem. And there are three things I want you to see that he emphasizes here. He emphasizes the gates and the foundations and what they represent. He emphasizes the immensity of the city. And then he also emphasizes the construction materials that were used to build this city, as it were. So the gates and the foundations of verse 12 to 14. There's a great high wall with 12 gates. Each gate has an angel. And each of the gates has the name of one of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel inscribed on it. And we find on the four sides of the city, there's three gates on each side. Now, we think of gates of a city for protection. You close the gates at night, keep the bad guys away. You you, you post a guard at the gate to make sure that no one comes and tries to breach the gate. And here we have these gates, and there's angels there posted at each one. And yet later on in the chapter, down in verse 25, we find that the gates are never shut. They're not shut during the day, and there is no night. There are no enemies to come and attack or invade. The gates remain open because there's perfect security and peace and safety. But the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel are inscribed on these 12 gates. And in the book of Revelation, when we, when we read of the 12 tribes of Israel, it speaks of the Old Testament church. And many times we have 
the Old Testament church and the New Testament church together. When in in chapter 7, we see the 144,000 before the throne of God. Who are we talking about? Well, 12 times 12 times 1,000 is 144,000. The 12 tribes of Israel is the Old Testament church. The 12 apostles of the New Testament church, 1,000 is a really, really, really big number. It's not a literal number, but it's a representation of the vast number of redeemed saints before the throne. So, here we have the Old Testament church, names written on the gates. And then there are 12 uh, foundations for these walls that go all the way around the city. And there's a name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb written on the foundations of these walls. So, here we have the New Testament church. The gates, the foundation, the entire church is there, Old Testament and New Testament. All the saints of God are one. Now, what comes next, it's really kind of astounding, the fantastic dimensions of this city. Verse 15 says, one, the one who spoke with me had, had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies four square, its same length as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, 12,000 stadia. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Its length and its width and its height are equal. He measured its walls, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. Now, what's he saying here? Now, some of you guys have some construction experience, right? You walk into a building where there's going to be some either renovation or, me- or you got to measure it, right? So, you get out your tape measure. Hopefully, you've got a really good one. I, I, I like my tape measure. I'm kind of attached to it. Don't take it from me. I've got, you know, I like my tape measure, right? But the angel has something different from that. He has a rod. That rod is a, a, a definite standard. It's made out of gold. But here's the crazy thing, the amazing thing, is this angel holding this rod can measure something that is 12,000 stadia. Now, how long is that? Well, one stadion is basically is, is 600 feet, Greek feet. And the trick is that Greek feet weren't always the same in every place. There was some variation. But basically, 12,000 stadia is somewhere around 1,400 miles. Just think about that for a minute. Here's this, this, this building. It's a perfect cube. Same width, height, excuse me, width, length, and height. And that's significant, and we'll talk about this more in a minute, but the Holy of Holies in Solomon's temple was a perfect cube, 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. So that's good. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the holy city is vastly larger. 12,000 stadia is somewhere around 1,400 miles. If you were to start in Miami, Florida, and go north for 1,400 miles, you'd come somewhere around Montreal, Canada. If you were to go to Myrtle Beach and go west 1,400 miles, you'd be somewhere near Albuquerque, New Mexico. Just think about that. A city that big, and it's as tall as it is big. Now, again, those who are saying this is the dwelling place of the church are saying it's really, really big because a lot of people will be there. Uh, I think it's emphasizing more the fact that it refers to a vast number of redeemed saints from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
And again, the reason the city is described with these cubic dimensions is because in Solomon's temple, the Holy of Holies was a perfect cube, 30 by 30 by 30. And inside that Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the Shekinah or the revealed glory was set to dwell. God's glory dwells in that Holy of Holies, that inner sanctum. And what we read here is that inner sanctum, that Holy of Holies, is really, really large. It's immense in its proportions. And what's very interesting is that in verse 22, it tells us there's no temple in the city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. <coughs> God's glory fills the Holy of Holies. Well, how big is that? It's the whole place. God himself is the temple. There's not a place where you have to specifically go or send the high priest in to go for you. We all have that intimate access, that immediate communion with our Father in heaven for all eternity. Verse 17 tells us the wall is 144 cubits thick. That's about 216 feet. Now, there are ancient cities today that have walls that are so wide you could drive chariots on them. And they were built that way so that, you know, soldiers could, could move quickly to defend the city. 216 feet would be something like a 20-lane highway. That's mighty large. Uh, but if it were 1,400 miles high, I don't think you'd get me on the top of it. Uh, but anyway, the point is these fantastic dimensions are emphasizing the glory of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's interesting, I, I just find this interesting. John throws in that the angel's measurement is the same as a human measurement. When we talk about cubits and stadia and so forth, it's kind of like they don't have metric up there and we have miles, it's all the same. I, I don't know. But I want you to notice the construction materials that John refers to in verse 18 and following. I'm going to read it again. The wall was built of jasper. And this jasper would be as clear as crystal. It would be like diamond if it's not diamond. The wall's built of jasper. We're talking about big walls. 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400 by 1,400. That's a lot of jasper. While the city was pure gold like clear glass, the foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. And then it goes through these 12 different types of jewels. And that's reminiscent of the breastplate of the high priest that had 12 different jewels. And each jewel had a name of one of the 12 tribes of Israel on his breastplate. But in glory, we will be priests to our God. We will be his people. We will have that immediate access to him. And so we have here these, these glorious building materials, as it were. Now, I, I like going to, walking through places like Home Depot and Lowe's. I call them the daddy toy store. And I walk through and I look at all the building materials. And I look at the, the appliances and the cabinets and the, the lumber and the, the, all the different stuff. And I just kind of dream, right? You think about what, what I could do with that, how fun that would be. Can you imagine going to the mall? And you go to the jewelry store, and you look at all this incredible jewelry in glass cases locked up, but lights on it display, and it's gleaming, and think, that's my building store. That's where the supplies will come from. And it is unspeakable 
unspeakably beyond my comprehension to build a city that size and to build it with materials John describes here. There's nothing in all of our world that is as glorious as what he describes. It's beyond our comprehension. The story you may have heard me tell before, it's of a guy who was really, really wealthy, and as he approached death, he, uh, he, he made a bargain with God, he, uh, or, or, you know, he, he made this attempt anyway. He, he got to the gate where St. Peter was, was checking the book, and he sees the guy's name there, and he notices this man has a suitcase that he's carrying. And he says, you don't need that suitcase. You just leave it here at the gate. No, 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 I, I, I really want this. It's very important to me. I need to take it in with me. And he's like, I, I don't think you do. He says, sir, I, I really think it's very important. I, I want to take this, this suitcase with me. Okay, show me what's in there, okay? And he opens up, it's gold bars. And Peter looks at these gold bars and says, pavement? The city's made of gold. Why would we need to take it with us, as it were? But again, the point is this is all symbolic. I don't want to get bogged down in all the details. It's better than words can describe or that our imagination can comprehend. We don't have categories. And so John piles these superlatives, this enormous size and these incredibly uh, valuable, precious jewels and gold to give us some idea of the glory of being in the presence of God. But he points out there are a couple things that will not be in the holy city. Verse 22, there's not going to be a temple there. There's no need for a temple because the entire city is the holy of holies. God the Father and the Lamb are its temple. Now, I find this very interesting. Its temple, singular, is, singular, God the Father and the Lamb. And I would say the Holy Spirit as well because God and the Son and the Spirit are three persons, yet one God. And the emphasis here is that we will all enjoy this immediate access to God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit in heaven for all eternity. How can God give his attention to all of the vast numbers in heaven at the same time? Same way he does now when we have prayer meeting in thousands of places around the world on Wednesday. And when we gather to worship on Sunday, he attends each of his children. There's no need also, there's no temple, but there's no need also for sun or moon or stars or any kind of lights because the radiance of God's glory illumines the city. And there are times in this life now we walk in darkness and we have no light, right? There are times we struggle to lay hold of the realization that God is with us. It just feels dark. And the psalmist talks about that darkness from time to time. That won't happen in heaven. There will be no need for light because the glory of God radiates night and day and we will bask in that light. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 60, if you would. Isaiah chapter 60, it's on page 620 if you're using a pew Bible. Now, I'm going to read a couple of verses. I'm going to ask you to keep your finger there because I'm going to read a couple more in a moment. But in Isaiah 60, verses 19 and 20, John is referring, remember, the, the, the book of Revelation relies heavily on the Old Testament. 
It reiterates, as it were. And so we read in Isaiah 60, verse 19 and following, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor brightness shall the moon give you, uh, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light, but the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Keep your finger there because I'm going to come back in just a moment. But back in chapter Revelation 21, uh, we have this final description of the holy city. It tells us the nations will walk by its light, by the light of the glory of God. Because see, the the Lord Jesus has redeemed for himself people from every tribe and language and people and nation. They'll all be there, this glorious gathering of the saints, Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, Jews, Gentiles, people from every time in every corner of the earth. Jesus brought, bought them. The Spirit sought them and drew them, and God will usher every single one into glory. And it tells us even the kings of the earth will come and bring their glory. Not as if there's anything that any of us could contribute to the Lord. But it's, it, it refers to this custom when a king would come and visit another king, particularly a greater king, he would bring tribute to say, you're greater than I am. And so I bring you tribute to show my, my, my uh, submission to your authority. And we see that being fulfilled. In fact, back in Isaiah 60, verses 1 through 3, I read this earlier as our call to worship, but I'm going to read it again. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord is risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the people. But the Lord will rise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Now, Israel expected that to be in their nation, in this age, in time. But we find here in Revelation, it's actually pointing to that age in eternity. So we don't need lights. We don't need a temple. We don't ever need to close the gates, verse 25 tells us. There is no danger. There are no threats. There are no enemies who will come. But rather, the nations will show, rather than any kind of opposition, glory, honor, and tribute. And then we read in verse 27, it's a place of absolute purity. Nothing unclean will ever enter it. Nor anyone who does what's detestable or false, only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That's why the gates never need to be shut. And once again, John mentions here the Lamb's book of life. Every single person whose name is written in that book will be there. Well, how do I know if my name is written in the book? You know if you trust in Christ. All who the Father has given to me, will come to me. If you, come, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, if you come to him, it's because your name is in that book. You can't write your name in that book, but you also can't come to the Lord Jesus in your own decision and your own strength because there's everything in us naturally opposed to him. But if by the Spirit he gives us repentance and he gives us faith and we trust in Christ, we can recognize that's a work of God's sovereign free grace. And it's an evidence that our names are indeed written in that book. And every single one will be there. Not one will be lost. Now, I said a little while ago, 
the book of Revelation, and all these specific details we read just now, they're not there for our inspiration so much, or excuse me, for our information so much. Rather, they're there for our inspiration. It's a glorious description of what God holds in store for us, for His church, for His people. And we find all these details. Lydia and I were talking about this last night, and she said, why do you think it's so specific with all the building materials, all the, all the jewels and stuff? And I think God is appealing to our imagination to help us see that what is in store is beyond anything that we can comprehend. He is trying, as I, if I can say it this way, he's trying to blow our minds. He's trying to give us information overload, as it were, so that we would come back and just say, this is amazing. If the walls are jasper that is like diamond, I looked up today, how much is a diamond, one carat diamond worth? One carat is worth anywhere from $5,500 to $8,000. Now, the bigger the diamond, the more it is per carat because the bigger it's more. Can you imagine 1,400 miles long all the way around, high, 244 feet made out of diamond? We don't have categories for that kind of thing. But I just want to urge you, meditate on heaven. Think about these, this vivid language John used. Try to see in your mind's eye what he is describing here. It is better than anything we could ever imagine. I'll be leaving on Wednesday for three Sundays. And I want to ask you to do two things while I'm gone, okay? I want you to go back, and I want you to read the entire book of Revelation. If you've been with us through the study, you're going to read it with new understanding and new insights and new new perceptions and new, uh, new uh, awareness. You're going to read it with new eyes. So let me encourage you to go back and read the entire book, maybe a few times. And then try to imagine a city the size John describes with these most precious stones imaginable, with gold as common as asphalt. But recognize, brothers and sisters, it's the glory of God that's the real treasure. He's the light. He's the temple. He is the glory. And even though in this day we sometimes struggle to sense His presence, and we sing as the hymn writer wrote, when darkness veils His lovely face, I rest on His unchanging grace. Sometimes darkness veils His lovely face. Sometimes we struggle to love Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. We sing, I love thee, Lord Jesus, and yet there's a part of us that says, oh, I wish I loved you more. I love in our Trinity hymnal. On one side, you read, my Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee, all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior, are thou. If ever I love thee, my Jesus, tis now. And when I sing that, there's something in me that just kind of goes, oh, wow. And then I look across the page, and it's more love to thee, O Christ. More love to thee. This is my earnest plea. More love, O Christ, to thee. We won't need to sing that hymn on that day because we'll love him perfectly. We won't be able to help it. Think about that. We will not be able to help loving him perfectly. We'll delight in his presence. And even though we'll be in this dazzling, if it is a literal city of diamonds and jewels and gold, what will really capture our attention, what will transfix our attention in our hearts will be the radiance and the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus.